Welcome to the Pathway Podcast. This is the final week of our series, Go. Lead pastor, Jeremy Flanagan, wraps up this series by challenging us to continue the work of the early churches. Stay tuned after the sermon for this week's Next Steps. I was, I was thinking about um, what would make a group of Christians gathered together as excited as watching the Razorbacks beat Texas. And, and honestly, you know, there's very few things and very few times that we get together and we're just going to be so excited uh, that we're all cheering and screaming and, and everything else. My dog is finally, it seems to be getting used to it after, you know, 10 years of living with us. But, uh, you know, the one thing in the life of believers and in the life of a church and in a group of people worshiping God together that comes close to stirring that kind of emotion and, and that excitement and everything else is when we see people make that decision to trust in Christ. When we see them come from the point where they're questioning who God is or whether or not that Jesus is the way and, and they get to that place and they say, no, that, that's what I'm choosing. That's, that's what I'm going to rely on in my life. When, when we see that, and then of course we celebrate that picture anytime that someone comes uh, for baptism, whether they're just saved, whether they're coming to be a part of the church, whatever it is, and we, we see that picture shown again, it, it brings that excitement, right? That, that is the kind of activity for believers that does stir in us that same type of, of, of raw, raw moment. But it takes work. It takes effort. It takes a lot of things, people putting into it to be able to see those type of results, um, Jack and I had the privilege yesterday of going down and we spoke to an association of churches that was meeting and, and they had a panel discussion and he and I were on it uh, where they, they were asking about, you know, what you do to try and share your faith and, you know, and in the end, our answers pretty much went back to, it takes work. It takes dedication. It takes saying, you know what, if I care about people, if I say that I care about people, then I'm going to take on the responsibility to make contacts with people I don't know, and then make time to get to know them. And then after I make time to get to know them, take an opportunity to talk about the gospel or for friends or for family, to make time for them, uh, for neighbors, to be able to to get into each other's lives enough so we have the opportunity to talk about Jesus. It takes work. It takes effort. And today, the last part of this series, uh, as as we finish up this series of Go, I want to talk about responsibility. Because in the end, whether or not we are a group of people that see uh, individuals coming to know Christ as Savior, whether or not we give ourselves those moments to cheer about is going to come down to whether or not we take the responsibility seriously to carry the gospel forward. And, uh, you know, whenever I, I share stories, a lot of them are obviously family and upbringing. That's where your, most of your stories come from. I could steal them offline and pretend they're my stories, but they're, you know, other people's stories. So I just share my own. But this one is, is honestly about as good as I could get anywhere. My dad is a, is a great resource for stories. He's both a storyteller and a story maker. Um, but uh, he told me when I was uh, 14, um, and my, my parents had divorced at that point in time, so I wasn't living with him all the time. And I was still working for him full time, but I didn't live with him. Uh, and, uh, and then when I turned 16, he actually had to start paying me because I could get a paying gig at the grocery store. And so, you know, the dynamic was shifting. But he said at that point in time, he said, you know, son, you're 14. You're going to start going a lot of places, doing a lot of things. I'm not really going to tell you what to do anymore. 
And he said, I'm just going to punish you when you choose the wrong decision. I'm like, okay, all right. And uh, so it was interesting that that's a different dynamic. But, you know, the way he saw it, he talked to me about it later. He said, I'd rather give you three years of messing up while I could punish you instead of just let you get out the door and make all the mistakes while I can't do anything about it. Um, but then I found out, you know, he had told me his story of responsibility and, uh, and knowing how my dad grew up and just the different lifestyle and situation and everything else, uh, it always made me appreciate, you know, that, uh, all right, Dad, I'm just a kid. Well, he, he didn't really have that much of a, a normal childhood and things like that. His dad died when he was 10, and uh, he was, you know, his mother, and he has five siblings, and then he had, uh, uh, you know, his grandfather, my great-grandfather, uh, I called him Paws. His name was Herman Flanagan, but everyone knew him as Babe, um, which I'm, I'm like Bumper Pool's parents. I, I wanted to name Luke Babe. I wanted to go past the nickname stage and just name him Babe. I said, Jessica, it's a family name. Um, she didn't go with it. Now, mind you, don't say that, oh, she takes the whole naming thing seriously, because if we had had another son, she was going to name him Bo. Duke's a hazard, anybody? So, um, Anyway, but uh, we would have had Bo and Luke. But it would have been Luke and Bo. It would have been out of order. I told her that just doesn't even make sense. But Babe sounded great to me because I had so many stories about him and everything else. So I had that idea of what something that would be. But when my dad was 13 and they had the dairy farm and everything else, and one of the, the different things back then is they had convicts working on the farm. And so they would have work release and they would have people who were... Um, you know, sent from prison that would work there and, and everything else. Um, and so, you know, it was real interesting. Dad had so many stories, and, and they were still there when I was born, uh, not much long after, so I don't remember any of that. But he had so many stories of them coming in after weekends and different, you know, different crazy things. But some of them were pretty rough characters. Well, my great-grandfather um, did what my dad also ended up doing, which he was a cattle broker. He would travel all over you know, mostly the, the region to buy and sell herds of cattle. And so when he went out of town, his son wasn't there anymore because he dad died when my dad was 10, so all he had were his grandsons. And at one point at 13, I don't know why, where some of the older brothers were at this point, but he left my dad in charge of the farm at 13. And he handed him two things. He handed him the checkbook and the revolver. And he said, if anybody gets out of line, don't worry about taking them back. Which was more or less, you're 13, I don't want you to mess with it, just shoot them. And that was the message that he gave my dad. Don't worry, none of y'all can call the cops and turn my great-grandfather in. He passed a long time ago. Um, and there were plenty more things that you could have called scan on. But uh, anyway, so it gives me a great appreciation of my dad and his upbringing and everything else. But it's a funny story to me. Maybe not to you, you may be like shocked and aghast, but I've heard it so many times, it's, it's kind of bland. Um, but at 13 years old, and guess what? Those prisoners were on their model behavior because my great-grandfather would just send them back to jail. They don't want to mess with a th scared 13-year-old with a gun, with orders, you know. And so they never, he never had a problem um, and, because they had all heard the command too. But I can't imagine in my life, and my dad was a very, was a very strong person and very, you know, if you talk to him, a very confident person, but still yet, all of us, even the most confident person you see, can be putting on that front when down deep inside, you're fearful. You're scared. And the weight of whatever responsibility that you are handed and you have to deal with is crushing. You don't want anybody else to see it, but it's a lot to carry. 
and I can't even fathom. I, I know looking at my own son's eyes at the age of 13 when like we would leave the house or something like that and he's you know, having to sit there and think about it. I think back to my teenage years, which I was given a lot of responsibility early, but nowhere near that level. So I can't even fathom the idea at that age being told, yep, you're in charge, I'm going out of state. Um, we don't have cell phones, so you can call me like every other day. Uh, here's where I'll be at, the hotel you can call. Um, and, and just go, you're in charge of all of this now. The, the fear and the weight and uh, you know, the concern and everything else, uh, that, man, that could be debilitating. The only other option is the pure bliss of ignorance that you don't realize how bad of a, how bad of a job that you were just handed. Um, but it, it's not that. And I, I think to that story, anytime I think about responsibility and about the weight of decisions and about the weight uh, of things that I've been handed and things that I have to do, because it always lets me say, at least I wasn't him. At least I wasn't giving something that hard, that heavy, that young, where I would be that unprepared to do it. But the responsibility of being a Christian and being told that it is our job to take the gospel of Christ into the world can feel heavy, because it is. It can feel daunting because... We don't know what it's going to look like as we move forward. It can feel like it's too much and that we are unprepared to take on this role because in the reality, we all are. We all are. But God isn't, and he is the one that tells us as individuals, together as a church and worldwide as believers, that it is our job to go and he will be with us. And so at that point in time... No matter how heavy the weight of responsibility, no matter how much stress, no matter how scared we are to move forward with it, God has given us something to do. We must go. We must go. And so I want to share just a few things today, but I want you to have that in the back of your mind that, yes, the weight of responsibility to carry the gospel forward feels heavy because it is, because it should be, because it is vastly more important than anything else. But God will be with us. So I've been talking about the journeys of Paul, and when you see his map up here, and uh, let's throw the map up, it shows his uh, different journeys that he made, uh, so you can see all the different routes that he took. I want you to, to pay attention to a few places on the map, mostly there in the kind of the center top Asia, um, which is just western Turkey today. Um, we don't even think of that as Asia, even though it's central or, uh, or western uh, Asia, we think of that you know being far east, but... Turkey there in the red, which was called Asia back then, um, he didn't really spend a lot of time through there. He went across the top of it and really just hit Troas as a, as a port and went out. Um, Ephesus is the one big town that we know of where, yeah, he started a church there. Paul started a very strong church there, obviously Book of Ephesians. And so we know that. And that's kind of on the southern, southwest part where you see the red line coming in and going out of that city, that port city. So there's Ephesus. One of the places you don't see on there is Colossae, which is next to Laodicea. So if you like look right, the word Asia and kind of from the S in that just goes straight down and that little dot there is Laodicea. And next to that is Colossae. And that's where the book of Colossians was written to. But the only town really that he visited that we have him starting a church in was Ephesus. I want you to think about that. Um, because if you read the book of Revelation, there are seven churches in Asia that were written to. But the only one Paul was there, and the only one he started was Ephesus. Now, 
um, as we uh, you know take a look at this area. And by the end of AD 100, about you know 100 years after the birth of Christ, this pretty much contains all of the areas that were, were believers. Now there's Cyrene, which is down on the northern coast of Africa, and uh, there's a, a known church like at Alexandria in Egypt and Memphis. Uh, so there are a few little spots in northern Africa that aren't on this map. But otherwise, this is, this is it. Uh, and throw in Rome. Italy's over to the west there of Greece, Achaia. And so, that, you know, that's the world. That's where Christianity had spread to. It had gone as west as Rome, as far as south, um, as far as organized churches that we know of, the northern coast of Africa. However, we know that Ethiopian eunuch uh, went down and there were churches that were recorded uh, throughout the, from the first century on in Africa. Um, and so you see, in 100 years from the time Christ was born, you know, crucified, you know, 30-something years later, 33, 34, and then Paul coming on the scene, you know, a while after that, about 50, 60 years of Christian ministry, and this is where Christianity had gotten to. This is where it was at. So what does it look like, or what does it sound like when we read it on paper? Acts chapter 20, in these verses, when we go there, it gives a story, just a little quip that I thought I'd bring in, just to see what does it sound like when we see these maps and we see all the arrows and, and everything else. And usually when Paul would... Enter places, sometimes he was welcomed, but by the end of the time he was there, there was usually opposition. And so right here in this passage, he had had some opposition where he was at. Um, and so we pick up in Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. Then he said goodbye and left for Macedonia. While there, he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. And then he traveled down to Greece, where he stayed for three months. He was preparing to sell back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life. So he decided to return through Macedonia. Several men were traveling with him. They were Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, and Tychius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. And they went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. And after the Passover ended, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia, and five days later joined them in Troas, where we stayed a week. So, that's what it sounds like on paper. Now, there are some places where he stopped, and you get a story about what happened there, and the people he reached there, and the start of the church there, and then usually some opposition, and someone trying to kill him, or somebody that, uh, you know, he was taking their business away, and got mad, and tried to kill him, and, you know, that was kind of it. I traveled, I talked to people, someone tried to kill me, I went to the next place. And that's how a lot of it reads when we see that. Um, and uh, I just think it's important as you read through this and as you see what his trips were like, what do you know about all those people he talked about? Can, can very many of y'all tell me anything about Timothy? Sure. Yeah, we got some letters to Timothy, and he's talked about a lot. But otherwise, uh, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Trophimus, and Tychius, Gaius, Outside of them being referenced somewhere else, like Aristarchus was referenced in one of the letters of Timothy and some other things like that, what do you know about them? What did they do? How, how important were they to Christianity? How important were they to churches being started and spreading all over the world at that point in time? Let me tell you, 
in the end, they were more important than Paul and other people like them. Because without them, the travels of Paul would end, the work of Paul would dwindle down, and eventually go away. It was all of these different individuals that we don't really know much about that actually went and started and did more things than Paul himself did. Yes, in his life, he started some say between 14 or 20 churches, depending on who you ask. And there's debate over whether he started some of them. Some of them were like kind of, you know, understudies that he would send out. And they're like, well, do we count that to Paul or not? Um, but, you know, let's say it was 20 churches. 20 churches that Paul started in his lifetime. Amazing. But even at some of those, he only stayed for a few weeks, maybe a month or two. And then he had to go. So when we say starting a church, it's not like he put in a decade somewhere. No, he started a lot of churches, and they continued, and they grew because of all of these unnamed or named, but we don't know anything about most of these people. I I found a video. I saw it a few years ago. Business Insider put these out. I don't really know why, Um, but it's an amazing video, and uh, I just want this to play, and, and I'll talk about a few things while it plays. It, it shows you the spread of Christianity. They have another one that shows like the five major world religions and how it grows. But on, on the bottom, it kind of has the timeline. And here, by the end of about 100 AD, uh, it starts you know, spreading from Judea, where the dot is. And, and then by the 300s, reaching all of northern Africa over into western Europe. By about the time you get to 500 um, AD, it has pretty much covered western Europe and Turkey. Um, and, you know, it goes down further into Africa, probably than it even shows here on the map, but it, it really starts, you know, pushing in there. Now, when it's kind of spreading away there was the, the uh, start of Islam, and uh, Islam taking over much of northern Africa uh, and the Middle East, uh, but Christianity continues to grow uh, in Europe and grows to the north towards the Nordic countries and everywhere else and, and starts growing over into to Russia and other areas. Um, Islam kind of pushes it out of Turkey and, and pushes it away from there. And, uh, and so you start seeing that solidified with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but Christianity still had spread. Then it really expands when people move over to the New World, right? When the Americas are discovered and Christianity expands and covers um, much of uh, pretty much all of North and South and Central America, um, you have at this point in time, it's also uh, spread through Russia. Uh, it starts really picking up and spreading through all of uh, the southern half of Africa, and, and it just grows. But it all came from that starting point in Judea, and in 100 years, it encapsulated a lot of area. A lot of area, right? It took another 1,400 years for it to really break out. Um, you know, 100 years to go where we have seen, where Paul traveled in, then to other places. 400 years, and it kind of covers Western um, uh, Europe. But then it starts losing ground, and it doesn't really break out for another 1,000 years. For another 1,000 years. And even here in North America, South America, Central America, where Christianity is the predominant religion... It is dwindling in number, right? It's getting less and less and less, the people who actually believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. And so Christianity spread very quickly in that first hundred years. And then it continued to grow and to spread out for another 400 years. 
And then it struggled. It was pushed back and forth, back and forth. And then another boom. And I always say this, and I've said this all five weeks in this series. It began in the end, or in the beginning, with 120 people. At the end of Christ's ministry, 120 people sitting there, being a witness to him ascending, and then taking on the responsibility to go. You know, when I had that map up a second ago, I asked you to pay attention to Asia and the fact that Ephesus was the only city, really, that he visited there and spent time starting a church. Troas, what did it say? He stayed there a week, right? That was where he came in and out of. Didn't spend a ton of time there. Um, But out of Ephesus, in that first hundred years, more churches were started out of Ephesus than Paul did himself. I mean, they, they spread out throughout all of Asia to the point that while the New Testament was still being written, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation were written to churches there, to churches in Asia. Only one of them that Paul started. The others were started by these unnamed or not recognized named people who just went out and grew and spoke and spread Christianity. Specifically, how did the church at Thyatira start? I've actually preached on this before a few years back. Um, We don't really know, right? With most of these churches, we don't have a strong record of who started them. Some of them we do. Acts chapter 16, though, and here's one of his stops. And, And Paul, as he was traveling in Acts chapter 16 and verse 11, it says, We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. Verse 14, it says, One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. So here you just have this little story about Lydia, but right then you have somebody, and she was a businesswoman, she, she was a merchant, she had means to be able to welcome them in, she had enough room to welcome people into her home to stay, um, and, uh, and believers began meeting um, there at, at her house, And here in this little instant with this one convert, we know that she was staying in Philippi because obviously that's where some of her business was, but she was from Thyatira. And most people assume, historians assume, that either she herself or some people from her household who believed or some others that she had influence with were probably the seed to start the church at Thyatira that we know about in in Scripture, that we know about in history. And so, Paul didn't go there. We don't have anyone else necessarily going there. It was another one of those churches that was started because a a person going about their lives said, I'm going to make part of my life about Jesus. And I'm going to sacrifice part of my time and part of who I am and part of what I have to be able to move the gospel forward. And so, we see these stories and we see uh, the, the church grow. We see the spread of Christianity. We see in a hundred years what it became and then how quick it, it, it boomed after that. And we don't know the names of most of those people. 
Yeah, we can lift up Paul and Timothy and Peter, and we can lift up Luke, and we can lift up you know, all these other individuals, Barnabas and Saul and John Mark and others that we know that were going out and kind of planting seeds everywhere else. But their work was multiplied a thousandfold by other believers, not other apostles, not other even pastors or, or anyone else, by other believers who took the responsibility of the gospel. A couple of weeks ago when we talked about the church at Antioch and we talked about how that they're the ones that sent out the first mission team. We talked about how they were the ones first called Christians. And so when you looked at that church, I said the amazing and the important thing about them that was greater than any other church at the time, greater than the church back at Jerusalem or anywhere else, was that they just said the gospel's for everyone. We're going to start preaching the gospel to everyone. We don't need a vision from God with a sheet coming down with animals to tell us to do it. We're just going to do it. They had people from all over the world, from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, from uh, Middle East, all gathered in that one church, and they said, we're just going to give the gospel to everybody. And that's why that church grew, and I believe that's why God used them to be the one to start throwing out the seed. Because the seed that they threw out and that, that people received, that example that they got from Antioch, they started doing as well. And churches grew and expanded because individuals took on the responsibility of the gospel. They didn't just let Paul do the work. They took his work and they said, thanks for the great example. Now I'm going to go do it. And they had a much greater and farther reach than Paul ever did in his lifetime. You know, I want to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit here, and then I'm going to close with one little passage of Scripture today. But in 1 Corinthians 12, it's a passage where it really talks about us being the body of Christ. And there's one thing here that I usually don't talk about because it's generally, uh, you know, an idea of, of unity and helping each other out and building together, and that's a huge part of this passage. But I want, I want us to leave with a little bit different thought on it today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 says, The human body has many parts. And this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth and talking to them about church unity and cohesion and why everybody there is important. And he said, But the many parts make up one whole body, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less part of the body. If the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body it would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can, can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, I want you to take a few things from this passage. And the, the base meaning of this is, is beautiful. It's wonderful. It is so great for us to understand that every single believer in Christ who is part uh, of, of, of the local body, when you are here and you are part of a church, when you're part of a group of Christians, everyone has value. Right? And when you read this and it says, oh, yeah, you all have value, Look at who says that someone doesn't, right? The hand is not saying the foot shouldn't be part of the body. The hand is saying I shouldn't be part of the body. 
All the different parts of the body are saying, I am not as good as other parts. I shouldn't be a part of the body. You know, so oftentimes we think of, of things from the, the realm of other people may be looking down on us or other people you know, may say that we don't belong or that we don't fit here. Other people, are, are, you know, whether there's criticism or correction or something else. That, but when Paul was speaking to them about unity and about people feeling like they didn't belong to part of the body of Christ, it wasn't because any other person was saying that about someone else. No, they were saying it about themselves. They were saying, I don't belong. I don't fit. I don't function the way these other people function. I'm not as good as them. I don't have the role or responsibility or the capability as one of these other individuals here. So I don't feel like I belong. And Paul was trying to convince them to throw that mindset out because it is so far away from the gospel and the love of Christ and the entire meaning of unity in the body of Christ. And he said that all of us belong, all of us are important because it is the group of people and our variations, and our differences, and our varying abilities, and our varying places of life that give us our strength. Now, to that varying places of life, he goes on in verse 22, and he says, in fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. While the more honorable parts do not require this special care, so God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed the church. First, the apostles. Second, the prophets are the teachers. And then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Paul in other letters talks about the gift of, uh, of helping again. He talks about the gift of giving, the gift of serving, um, the gift of the three gifts that remain are peace, hope, and love. He, he talks about all these things that we can do for each other. But that came at the end of a discourse talking about how that the body of Christ is made up of different parts. We are all in this together. We are all responsible to and, and, and needful for the body to move forward in what God has called us to. And in this passage in particular, he talks about that, about that there are some parts that need covering at different times. Um, more or less, you know, that your hand and your wrist don't need covered, but if you walk outside without pants, people will start talking. I mean, that's not a hard illustration to figure out. Uh, but then he takes it a little further and says, you know, that sometimes there are parts of the body that kind of need more help and need some support. And that's where we all come together. Now, this is where I want to talk about before I, I, I move on to finish up today. As Jack and I were talking yesterday and sitting there and, and the different things we said around it, and it all ended up at the same place. In the end, the gospel of Christ moved forward when we commit ourselves to do the work. And that's it. When we commit ourselves to do the work, God is going to be in it, right? We're not responsible for the results of it. We're just responsible to say yes to the work that God has put in front of us. We are responsible to, to say, I'm going to take ownership of what I've been handed. It may be scary, right? 
It may be intimidating. I may not know exactly how to do this. I, I might rather choose that somebody hand me a revolver at 13 to be in charge of criminals than go out and feel like it is my responsibility to take the gospel and to do something with it. Right? I know how weighty that can be. But we're all in this together. And sometimes when we're weak, that's when the rest of us can surround us. But the trap I don't want us to fall into is to view the body of Christ as a way to live within our weakness. I don't want us to use the body of Christ and the people we have around us as a reason to say others are handling the responsibility I don't have to. Because while it is a beautiful picture and it is an absolute wonderful function of what churches are to be for each other, to love and to support, and to when somebody's going through it, every single one of us are there, okay? You know, there are times where we've been in staff meetings a few years ago when I, I as pastor, I just had to tell staff, y'all got to handle this because I'm, I'm burnt out, I am depressed, and I just can't really do much. I'm going to do what I can do and everything else, but I just, spiritually, you guys are going to have to take the reins here. So, I mean, it happens with me, all right? I do a pretty good job of trying not to let that to bleed out here, but I even talked about it some from stage. There are times when I am not at a place in my life that I can carry the weight on my own, and I have to have other people carry it for me until I get back to a place where I can move and drive forward again. You know, whenever you have an and uh, anytime you see a, a scene with military and you see people fighting on front lines, when someone is injured, what happens? A few individuals go to take care of that person, but everybody else has to keep fighting and pushing forward. If everyone were to stop and to go back, or if everyone you know, sh- you know, ran away from the responsibility handed to them, they get run over and, and, and pushed back. Our churches lose ground. Christianity loses ground whenever we get to the mindset that, you know, I'm not in a place where I can take on a role to help move the work of God forward right now, so I'm just going to let other people handle it. Now, there are times when your life will be that, but you can't stay there. We can't use or find excuses to keep us on the sidelines. We use those moments and times when we have to step back and release some roles, and release some responsibility, let other people carry that torch forward and do it for a little while so we can rest and recover with the intent of getting back on the front lines. We cannot be okay with saying, you know what, Paul's going out there doing this. 20 churches is pretty great. It is pretty awesome. That's a wonderful thing. And if Paul was left to do it alone, that's all that would have ever happened. So, Never look around, whether it's me or another staff member, whether it's somebody on the same row as you this morning, whether it's somebody else that you respect and you think to yourself, man, I'm not that person. I I don't have their capabilities. I don't have their heart. I don't have their drive. Um, I really don't don't belong in this body as much as they do. Number one, that's a lie that we tell ourselves, and that's a lie the devil wants us to believe to keep us on the sidelines. Because Paul, through the Spirit of God, said, well, no, we're all in this together and we're all important. And whatever your role looks like in this moment in time, if it's helping move the, the kingdom of God forward, it is important. Now, I'll, I'll say this, that 
we all need to be about sharing our faith, right? We all need to be about sharing our faith. But right now, in order for me to, to speak to you this morning out of the word of God, there are people in the back changing diapers, right? In order for this to happen and to go, you know, to go forward, the worship team and the AV team was here early getting things done. People were here yesterday setting up. The, the, the way that our, our kids learn about God on Wednesday and our teenagers are because volunteers put their time into that. Small group leaders, as you've seen, have been working and are, and are about to be launching those groups this week. You know, deacons, we meet and we talk about needs and they move out and take care of those. There, there are so many different roles that it takes to just make, you know, an hour or two of what we do a week look, you know, I don't want to say easy, but like you don't realize all the things churning to make things happen. But it can't stop there. We can't simply do those things. Those things do need to happen, and everybody that takes part in any of the smallest roles, uh, that, that that is needful, that is helpful, and we all need to be looking for those. Are there times in life where we can't, where we can't handle it? Absolutely. Don't stay there. And are there times in life where we say, we don't understand how me and my personality or my ability or anything else is going to be effective in sharing the gospel of Christ. Yeah, we're, we all are there. How do we move past it? Don't be content to stay in our weakness. Don't be content to watch other people that we think are better than us at this move forward while we simply observe. The way that the gospel spread is through all those individuals in all those churches who took on their responsibility for themselves. And there's a great, great quote Larry shared in staff meeting a few weeks ago when we were talking about this sermon series. And it's from Bill Gates. And it said that most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And so it, it's so true because a lot of times we'll go out the gate and we think we're going to take the world by storm. And if we fail because we overestimated, then we just fall backwards and we fall away and, and, and we don't keep going. But if we settle in and we say, you know what, I'm going to move forward no matter what and I'm going to do it for the long term, then when we have those seasons in life that throw us back, that's okay, we keep moving forward. When we can't be one of the strong members of the body that can help support others, that's okay, we can let somebody else come aside and help us. But I'm going to keep moving forward past that part of my life and I'm going to get to where I am actively helping carry this. And even in those times, we can still have a role and a part of worshiping God, encouraging others to worshiping God, praying for others. And you don't know how important just those little things will be to you and the people around you. I want to close this morning where we started this series five weeks ago, Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is, as we all uh, you know, call it, in verse 18, it says, Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, the thing I keep saying and the, the, the thing and the thread that kind of goes through this is I just keep, you, I'll use the word, harping on responsibility, right? And you're like, all right, preacher, we've heard it. You've said it. We get it. We're kind of tired of hearing it because you keep saying it. 
But I say it for one reason, because I have to remind myself of it constantly. I have to remind myself of it constantly. When we were driving home yesterday after we got to share some ideas, I said to Jack, you know, going and speaking about what we're supposed to be doing for Christ motivates me to actually go back and do what I just said. You know, there's so much that we know what to do and we can communicate how to do it and everything else. And in the end, none of that matters unless we're going. None of that matters unless we wake up and we say, I'm going to take responsibility to take a step forward today. None of it matters unless we actually take what's in our heart, what's in our mind, and what's in front of us, and we put all those together with action. What does that look like? Whether an area to serve, whether an area to help and encourage others, whether an area to go and to actively share the gospel, if it's to create relationships with people to open the door to do that, um, it can look a lot different. You having coffee with somebody can have more impact in their life than, than even me preparing a lesson. And so it looks different for all of us. And that's the beauty of the fact that God gave us as a church the responsibility to work together and to move forward as different parts moving in different ways but serving one purpose. The key is whether we take the responsibility to go. Thank you for listening. We challenge you to take some next steps this week. One, do we have a vision for where we want our church to go? How will it impact our community, our region, and our world? Accomplishing that begins with each of us determining a personal vision to not only achieve our individual and family goals, but be a part of moving the kingdom of God forward. Two, set someone in your life as a prayer focus and commit to share the gospel with them in 2021. For more information about small groups, Pathway Kids, or anything Pathway related, contact us at pathwaybaptist.com slash connect.